about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there's room for you here. This is a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us we're all active participants as we stay on this journey together. We're all here to receive something this morning, but we also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also spread God's love by serving others. Today is a fun day for us because uh, we're going to receive and recognize new ministry partners. But before we uh, do that, I wanted to give a chance for one of these new ministry partners to share their God story. So I'm going to introduce you to Sierra McFarland. Sierra has the... Apparently, I don't need to introduce you. Uh, Sierra has the distinction of being the first person to give her God story at all three services. So the the best kind of guinea pig, and uh, hopefully gets a great nap this afternoon. But j- join me in re-welcoming Sierra McFarland. Hi. Um, I grew up in a tiny town in Colorado, and I got to live a really idyllic childhood playing in the mountains and being with my wonderful parents. I'm an only child, so my relationships with my parents were really important to me while I was growing up. And both my parents are really incredible and loved me so well um, my whole life. But my mom wrestled a lot with anger management while I was growing up. And so my response was to believe that I had to earn love from her. I thought I had to do all the right things and none of the wrong ones to keep the peace and to make sure that she was pleased with me. Believing I had to earn love from her bled into all my relationships, friendships, guys, and even with God. My family went to church every Sunday, and I was always active in the youth group, but I thought that God only cared if I didn't mess up too bad and checked all the right boxes of going to church, praying before meals, and going to summer camp. In high school, I very much lived a double life. I went to all the church things and knew most of the right answers, but then would spend the rest of the day with my boyfriend. The desire to earn love was so present in my life and led to a couple of really unhealthy relationships. I then came to Davidson for college, and I immediately met two Young Life leaders a year older than me, Haley and Lauren. They hung out with me all the time, covered my dorm room in sticky notes, wrote me letters, took me out to meals, and showed me that I didn't have to earn love. In them, I saw for the first time that my relationship with God could be so much more than just checking the right boxes, but could be an actual personal relationship with him that wasn't about me earning it was about me accepting the free gift of grace that they had so beautifully shown me. I wanted to do whatever they were doing, and so I shadowed to become a Young Life leader, and at a club later that semester, heard one of the Young Life leaders give what we call the crosstalk, and a light bulb went off. I suddenly understood what the cross meant for me personally. From then on, I really dove into my relationship with Jesus throughout college. I became a Young Life leader, and Jesus has absolutely transformed my life through it. There have been really hard conversations and tough relationships. There have also been so many beautiful moments where I've gotten to sit with high school girls. They go from death to life and start a relationship with Jesus and walk with them while I figure that out. After graduating from Davidson, I worked at a Young Life camp in Colorado for a year, and I loved it, but then felt a tug to move back to Davidson to be a Young Life leader again. It was very clearly from the Lord because most of my time at Davidson, I'd been counting down the days until I'd moved back to Colorado. But Jesus brought me back here, and I've gotten to be on Young Life staff, um, which truly feels like a dream job. 
the most recent big thing that God has been doing in my life has to do with my dad. Three years ago, he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And walking through that diagnosis and the treatments and battle with him, I've seen Jesus transform he and my mom's relationship with each other, and more importantly, with him, with God. They were both cultural Christians, much like I was in high school, but in the last few years, I've really started to depend on Jesus and have relationships with him. Currently, my dad has no signs of lymphoma and is doing really well, which is truly a gift from Jesus. His battle with cancer taught me how to feel much more deeply and led me to go to counseling, which was wonderful, as well as learn more how to trust Jesus with things that I would much rather have control in, my family, with high school girls, roommates, friendships, my job, everything. I'm so grateful for the love of Jesus that we don't have to earn and so grateful for the way that he's been writing my story and is continuing to write my story in ways that are so much better than I could have ever earned or planned or controlled. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much. And through the y'all in at the end, just for us. Wonderful. Well, we do want to take just a few moments to recognize some uh, new ministry partners. If you join Lake Forest Church, you're not called a member, you're called a ministry partner. Member implies if you pay your dues, you get certain rights and privileges. Ministry partner implies that God has given you a purpose or a ministry. God has given our church a purpose or a ministry. We choose to partner the two to create something beautiful. In August of 2011, before we opened this here fine church and this gym, uh, we met in this gym and we prayed, God, bring us people who are hurting that they might experience your healing among us. So it's always beautiful to have new ministry partners step up and be part of how God answers that prayer. And so uh, there's a handful of folks, I believe, at this service and the next service and the, the at 8.15. But if you have finished Welcome 101 and are going to be recognized as a new ministry partner today, will you stand up where you are? Somebody has to go first. Mike and Kay went first. You beat Sierra by half an inch. <laughs> beautifully done. Beautifully done. All right. Uh, I guess I should introduce. This is Mike and Kay. And you already met Sierra. Mike or Kay, which one of y'all wants to go next on the story? Okay. Well, being a ministry partner is a public commitment to God and to this church family. It comes by answering yes to these five questions. Are you ready? That's not one of the questions. That's, our, that's the only joke I have. All right, here we go. Number one. Do you acknowledge your relationship with God was beyond repair until God, by His grace and mercy, repaired it and reached out to you? Do you? Do you believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the healer of lives? Do you depend upon Him alone to reconcile you to God? Do you? Do you promise, humbly relying on God the Holy Spirit, to live as a follower of Christ whose life points people to God? Do you? Do you promise to serve Christ as part of this church, not simply sitting and soaking, but serving others on Sunday morning and throughout the week? Do you? And do you submit yourself to the accountability and spiritual oversight of the church's leaders, promising to promote the unity, the purity, and the peace of the church? Do you? Wonderful. Let me pray for you. 
Lord, we, we do lift up uh, these dear friends along with all who are ministry partners of our church, uh, and, and we pray that their example will inspire others to do the same. But we thank you for the ministry you've given them, the purpose that you've given them, and we pray, Lord, that that they would continue in that purpose, that they would see that purpose in new and clearer ways by being part of our church. And Lord, that in their own right way, they'll put their stamp on this church family and make us different in good and wonderful ways. So Lord, we pray you would bless the work that they do, bless their friendships, bless their families, make them uh, ambassadors for you, people who point others towards God. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's welcome. Our new ministry partners. Well, very good. Let's see if we have a sermon now. How did recording go this week, by the way? Not too bad. Okay, that's all we can hope for. All we can hope for. A fair number of the Worship Arts team spent a, a bulk of this past week laying down the tracks. Isn't that, is that what you say? Is that the lingo? <laughs> laying down the tracks for the, what will become the second Lake Forest Davidson uh, album. Album? CD? Disc? <laughs> Record? <laughs> In process. We're very excited. And thanks for a long week that uh, you still have to show up on Sunday, so thank you for that. Over these past weeks, we've been exploring a fresh and a biblical perspective on the work that we do, that work is a significant part of our lives, but it's often something that we don't reflect on much, right? Work keeps me busy, it drives me crazy, it puts food on the table, what else is there? Well, from God's perspective, there is more to the work that we do. From God's perspective, work can be at least three things. Work is a gift, work is a ministry, and work is a window. From God's perspective, work is a gift, work is a ministry, and work is a window. It is a God-given gift, it is an opportunity for ministry, and it is a window into God's nature and character. So two weeks ago we looked at work as a gift. Last week Grace said, hey, but what about money? What's our view of money? Isn't that what work is about? Grace is about to get ordained, by the way. We're work, we're we're working on that, January probably. He's going to be pastor, the right Reverend Holiness Gray. <laughs> Stay tuned. Next week is work as a ministry, so you can probably deduce what I want to talk about today is work as a window. How is work a window into better understanding God's nature and God's character? That work has the ability to draw us closer to God by giving us a glimpse of what God is like. For example, day in and day out, I have some important work to do. I am a husband to Mandy. I am a father to Indy, and I'm one of the pastors of this congregation. Now, being a loving and faithful husband takes effort. Being a, a kind and sometimes firm dad takes effort. Now, my family would tell you I make it look effortless. <laughs> They're not at this service. I can say that. But it takes effort. Of course, being a pastor of this congregation is another thing that I do, and it takes effort. How does serving, leading, working as a pastor give me a window into God's nature and God's character? 
Now, you may say I'm cheating a little bit here because, of course, being a pastor gives you a window into God's uh, nature and character. But, but, and Dr. Bud will back me up on this. Others of you could as well. Being a pastor is not all glamour, right? Uh, we have to make budgets. We have to stick to budgets. We have to check in with our staff. We, we have to receive unsolicited feedback. We, we have to do credit card recons. It's not like I just get to work at 10 and pray for two hours and then go grab lunch at the Taco Bell, swing by the P.O. box to see if God mailed me this week's sermon yet, and then call it a day. However, one of the windows that being a pastor offers me into God's nature, offers me into God's character, is I better understand what Jesus means when he calls himself the good shepherd. I get it. At least I get it a little bit. Right? I I understand through the work that I do some of what it means to be a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer to a group of people, a flock of people. I get what it means to have this huge heart that you want to see people grow, you want to see people change, you want to see people healthy, you want to see people experiencing real and vibrant life, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to solve all the problems or cater to everyone's wants or needs, but more so you are trying to guard the overall health of the flock. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I get that. I get it at least a little bit. Now, Jesus is a shepherd to billions. I'm a shepherd to like five or six hundred. And he does better with the billions than I do with the hundreds. He's the good shepherd. I'm the okay shepherd, I suppose. But through the work that I do, I get a window. I get this little experiential window into what Jesus must be like. And how glorious Jesus must be to do the work that he does so well. So the question I would like you to consider during our sermon and after our sermon today is this. How does the work that you do, whether it is paid or unpaid, whether it's a job or it is simply a privilege that's been entrusted to you, right? We're using a big definition of work, the things in our lives that take real sustained effort. How does the work that you do give you a window into God's character and nature? How does the work that you do give you a window into God's character and God's nature? How does the work that you do help you see more clearly who God is? Work can be a window. It can allow our hearts, our minds, our souls to experience some little bit of how truly amazing God is, how deep and wide his love for us is, how he can engage this world and engage each of us with both grace and truth. So our work as a window helps us to draw closer to God by seeing Him a little bit more clearly. Now this is a really different way to think about work. But how might you begin to look at the work that you do and see it as a way that God is drawing you closer to Himself by telling you a little bit of who He is? The clearest biblical example I could think of of this comes in the passage that Joe read earlier. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. In the passage, there is a centurion. A centurion is a leader in the Roman army who would typically oversee a hundred soldiers. Centurion, the same root word as century, one hundred. 
So a centurion would oversee 100 soldiers. Although if you dig a little into history, you'll find that some centurions only oversaw 80 soldiers and some centurions oversaw 200 soldiers. So even the old Romans were as confused by Latin as many of us are. They didn't know their Latin root words either. So you got this centurion. He oversees plus or minus 100 soldiers. And he comes to Jesus. This is verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 6, Matthew. He says, Lord, this is the centurion, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why the centurion came to Jesus. In fact, Jesus' earthly ministry was really targeted to people of Jewish heritage. Jesus was Jewish, Jewish. his first disciples were Jewish. And after his death and resurrection, he told his disciples to go and spread the good news about Jesus to anyone who would listen, that God's family was open to everyone. But during his earthly ministry, before his death and his resurrection, the real focus was on people from Jewish heritage. And up walks this Roman centurion, who is not Jewish at all. In fact, he's one of the occupiers of the Jewish land. So it's not clear exactly how or why or whatever he knew about Jesus. But it is clear at this point in Jesus' life, his reputation preceded him. And so the centurion comes up and asks for help. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? So Jesus didn't go for much chit-chat here. He says, my servant is paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus says, shall I come and heal him? He goes right to the heart of the matter. Do you want me to come heal your servant? And you think the answer would be this emphatic yes, or at least Roman army emphatic, whatever that sounds like, yes. But he gives a different answer. It's unexpected. It's a little astute. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Do you remember like being in grade school and you'd, you'd play that game, if you could have one person come over to your house for dinner, who would it be? Who, who'd you say? Jesus? Yeah, Jesus gets a lot of votes. Jesus gets a lot of votes. Uh, Abraham Lincoln will get a lot of votes. You know, that'd be fun, have old Abe come over. At my school, Mike Tyson got a lot of votes. <laughs> this is before he bit the dude's ear off. But he got a lot of votes. Someone at the 815 service said Michael Jordan, you know, so they went to the same school as I did, apparently. Uh, what's interesting here is the centurion actually gets the invitation and he says no. The centurion does not want Jesus to come to his house. This is an interesting development. He does not think he is worthy of having Jesus come over. His point is that Jesus is holy. He's a holy man. And the centurion's like, I'm not a holy man. Jesus is perfect. And I, the centurion, under no illusion that I'm perfect. So I can't conceive of Jesus coming to my house. He understands intuitively that there is this gap between his imperfection and God's perfection. There is a gap between his sinfulness and the holiness of God. And he knows he cannot cross that gap. And so he says he is unworthy of having Jesus come to his house. Now, Christians believe that Jesus bridged that gap between fallen humanity and a perfect God. But the centurion wouldn't know that, right? Jesus has not yet died and resurrected. He may not really know all that much about Jesus at all. 
So the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. To that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So the centurion has this sort of intuitive sense that Jesus is holy and perfect and somehow God. There's this clear gap between himself and Jesus, but through his work, he has this interesting window into some part of God's character, some part of God's nature. He knows that he does not want Jesus to come to his house, but because of the work he does, he also knows he does not need Jesus to come to his house. Why does he not need Jesus to come to his house? Because he understands how authority works. When his boss tells him to march, he marches. When he tells his soldier to march, the soldier marches. That's how authority works. He's in the the, the army. He understands how chain of command and authority work. That is one of the first things you would be taught in the Roman army. So the man's point is, Jesus, I believe you have authority. I believe that you, Jesus, have authority over the physical world. I believe that you, Jesus, have authority over the spiritual world. So just say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't need to come to my house any more than I need to march behind my soldier to make sure he keeps marching until I tell him to stop. I have the authority to tell him to march, and that authority is not bound by my geography. Jesus, you have authority over this world, and that authority is not bound by your geography. So just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now you might see why Jesus got extremely excited about this response. He actually healed the man's servant, and then he said this. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And I just kind of imagine the disciples standing there, you know, because they're all from Israel. Uh, And he says, I haven't found anyone in Israel with all this faith. As if to say to the centurion, you get it. You finally, someone gets it. Can you help these guys over here? They don't get it yet, and I'm about to leave them in charge. And what does the centurion get? The centurion gets that he is incompatible in his imperfection with Jesus' perfection. But he also gets that Jesus has authority over the world, the world seen and unseen. And in part, he understood those things because he was a centurion. And thus he understood how authority and chain of command worked. And so in this transformative moment, he placed his, himself and his entire household under the authority of Jesus. It's a beautiful moment. And it's his story. What about your story? How does the work that you do Broadly defined, whether it's paid or unpaid, how does the work that you do give you a window into God's character and nature? How might it draw your heart, your mind, your soul closer to the God that loves you and created you and came to earth as Jesus Christ to redeem you? For example, 
you might be able to relate to God the Holy Spirit being called our advocate. Or you might be able to relate to God the Holy Spirit being called our counselor. You might be able to relate to Isaiah 64, 8 that says God is the potter and we are the clay. That each of us is the work of God's hand. You may be able to relate to God resting at the end of the Bible's first chapter. That God found deep satisfaction in the work that he had done. And so he rested. He was confident there was more to his identity than what he accomplished. As a student, you explore the mysteries of creation and of the human will. And you discover how much diligence is required to become an expert in any field. How much must be required to be the expert of every field. Or marriage is a metaphor that's one of the most common metaphors to describe the relationship between Jesus Christ and his followers. And that's in part because it is a commitment-based relationship. It is not necessarily uh, as susceptible to the whims of how I do or don't feel on any given day. So maybe you can relate to that. Athletics is a common metaphor for the Christian faith. And specifically, the the image of running a race. That the Christian faith has exhilaration, but the Christian faith also has exhaustion. But with the promise that Jesus waits at the finish line to congratulate us. And where is the finish line, you ask? I've lost count of how long I've been running. It could be around that next turn. Nope, maybe it's around the next turn. Perhaps, this is my last example, perhaps you gave up a paying job to to raise kids. So you may be able to relate to this thing that Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus said this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those you sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus, who spent his earthly ministry trying to find the lost sheep of Israel, he he turns his gaze to the capital city of Jerusalem, and he says, how I have longed to nurture you under my watchful care. I have longed to gather you together and nurture you under my watch. Jesus saying to the the people then to us, he has longed to be our mother hen. A friend of mine has a hen. A friend of mine in Vermont has a hen. And he says it looks like a down pillow with little legs coming out the bottom of it. And the one thing this hen likes to do is sit on her nest and keep her eggs warm, keep her little babies warm. This is what she wants to do. She is a nurturer. In fact, on one frigid Vermont uh, day, he went out there with a thermometer. I have odd friends. He went out there with a thermometer and measured the temperature of the hen house and found it to be 30 degrees warmer than the surrounding air. She is a nurturer. (laughs) She loves to keep those eggs and those chicks warm. 
Now, if you think about it from the chick's perspective, though, most of all, what you would see is darkness. Right? Darkness is something we all get. We, we all experience darkness. Some of us are experiencing darkness right now. If you're there, I get it. You know, I, I, I'm in there with you. Mandy and I live with a certain amount of heaviness, uh, darkness in our own lives as we anticipate that sometime next year our daughter will need a second heart surgery. The only thing harder than handing your kid to a heart surgeon is doing it again. As a church family, we walk through darkness with people. We know that. There have been things this and other years that are unbelievably hard for people. There's no words to convey what you want to convey, so you sit quietly with people. As a community, we're going through this with a colleague of mine, same year as I was at the college. So we get darkness, right? Darkness is real. Darkness is difficult. Darkness is a formidable thing. If I have learned anything through walking through hard things with others and walking through hard things myself, it is this. Uh, darkness is real, but, but I do not live in a cold and abandoned darkness. I live in a warm darkness. And sometimes when our ears are attuned, we will hear the rustle of feathers surrounding us. How I have longed to nurture you. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray or to talk to God or to listen to God about whatever He's stirring in your heart or in your mind. Just take this time for silent prayer. Lord, I thank you that you are with us in the dark times. Sometimes we can't always see where you are or what you're doing. But perhaps that's because you surround us. Lord, I thank you for the work you're doing in our lives, the way you let us see you more clearly through the responsibilities and the vocations and just the work that you have given to us. Lord, some of us may feel like this centurion. He didn't know much about Jesus, but with what he knew, he acted on it. And so I pray we would do the same thing with whatever we know about you, that we would act on it. And that in doing so, we would place ourselves, our families, our lives under your authority. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen.